So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's a July day in 2011, and Dennis Oland walks into an interrogation room in a St. John, New Brunswick police station. Or like I said, I'm Constable Davidson, and... Uh, what I'm just going to do is just kind of go through, uh, I guess, the events over the last uh, little bit. Dennis is in his 40s, a financial advisor, and he looks the part, wearing khakis and a turquoise polo. And for a man who had just learned that his father had been found dead, Dennis Oland is surprisingly calm. Well, it's pretty clear in my head that he, he didn't have a heart attack and die. Something's happened to him. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, so the first thing that runs through your head is, you know, is this one of those, uh, you know, crackhead type things or whatever, where someone goes in and, you know, does that kind of thing or, you know, like sort of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Dennis's father, Richard, was a scion of New Brunswick's famous beer brewing dynasty, the Olins, best known for making Moosehead. And he had a reputation for being difficult. He and Dennis would sometimes have huge arguments on sailing trips or at family get-togethers. I certainly remember a Christmas dinner, not last year, it might have been two years ago, where he blew a gasket of something simple. You know when you uh, you have a Christmas cake and you pour rum over hot rum yes. over it and you let it flame? Mm-hmm. Okay, well... It was my job to do that in a flame for like 30 seconds and flamed out. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got it from the kitchen into the dining room, it flamed out. Well, it was a big fight over that. Okay. Yeah. It was 
you know, it's not physical, but I mean, it was it was ugly. I I, I might have left. I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, it was, everybody was very upset. And the St. John police are especially keen on talking to Dennis because it appears that he was the last person to see Richard Oland alive. So after about an hour of asking about Richard and where Dennis had been the day that his father had died, they asked Dennis the obvious question. Did you have any involvement in your, in your father's death? No. I ask you that because you were the last person there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's something that I have to cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have no reason to want my father dead to kill him. But as Dennis goes back and recounts his day over and over for another hour, the tone starts to shift. The detective notes some inconsistencies in what Dennis is saying. Exactly when did he leave his father's office? Why didn't he mention he'd driven the wrong way down a one-way street? Dennis becomes agitated. And so he, I think he's realizing the, that the pressure's on him and he becomes nervous and uh, He's saying he's getting a mental block, but he can't remember, you know, uh, where he parked, how many times he visited the office and things like that. That's Greg Marquis, a professor at the University of New Brunswick, who's published three books on the murder of Richard Oland. I'm having difficulty getting it straight. Okay. I want you to think hard, though. I want you it's really important, like I said. I want you to think. Take your time thinking. And just play it through and let me know what took place. You have me intimidated now, so now I'm getting a mental block. Okay. Uh, like you're, you're no, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm sorry, because I'm just, I get yeah. focused and I get, no, I know, trying to pay and, attention and I'm trying to focus and I'm trying so hard. At one point, Constable Davidson leaves the room and Dennis sits there, tracing a map with his finger on a nearby table and whispering to himself, seemingly trying to figure out the route he took when he left his father's office. I drove in and I parked. Then I left and I went around and then I stopped there. It's, uh, you know, about an hour and a half in, he's sort of they give him a charter warning. Dennis is allowed to call a lawyer, and then after he makes the call, he sits back down in the interrogation room, and Constable Davidson tells Dennis exactly what he thinks happened. Dennis, given our conversation, there's no doubt in my mind that you did this. Did what? You you had involvement in this in this death. And I want to know why. Okay. Dennis shuts down. His lawyer told him not to talk. So the police swap out Constable Davidson's good cop for the bad cop. Dennis, I'm Keith Copeland of the Major Crime Unit. Steve Davidson, partner. I've been watching this interview since it started. I've been involved in this investigation right from the get-go. It's very clear to me that you... Dennis, are in a very bad place. At this point, Dennis is barely talking. He's sitting cross-legged, shifting away from the investigator, refusing to look him in the eye. The cop presses him. So the situation that you are now in, Dennis, and that they are aware that you were in, is something that doesn't change the way they feel about you. 
I'm quite certain when I say that. We all just wish this hadn't happened. Every last one of us. But it did. So now, Dennis, it's the way forward. Take the path forward, Dennis. And the path forward is... Why did Dennis do this? Is Dennis cold-hearted, murderous, conniving person? Or did Dennis finally get sick and tired of being browbeaten and abused and watching his family be abused by this guy who sails all over the world racing expensive yachts? doing whatever he wants, taking people here, taking people there, arguing with his mother over $150 worth of groceries. That gets pretty old, doesn't it, Dennis? Damn right it does. So this wasn't about financial gain for Dennis. Isn't that right? This was about ending the tyranny. I've had enough of this. You're not treating me like this anymore. Or maybe there was no conscious thought. Maybe it was just like, ah! Was it just a moment of flash of, flash of whatever? Just no plan, just, it just happened? But Dennis barely says another word. After five full hours, they finally come to an impasse. Dennis, I just want to look you square in the eye and give you this opportunity to deal with this right here now, you and I. I know you've had plenty of opportunity to sit here and think about this and to think about where it's going to go. And I hope you fully understand that you're making decisions here that can not be changed in that this opportunity is growing wings and it will never be presented again. Will you take advantage of that opportunity? Will you tell me what happened? So yes or no? No. We're done. Dennis Olin walked out of that interrogation room a free man. But two years later, he would be charged with the murder of his father. The trials that would follow would be the most sensational in modern New Brunswick history. And the outcome continues to divide the province to this day. The investigation into Richard Olin's murder captivated an entire province for a decade. Now, the Olins aren't Canada's most famous or powerful dynasty. They're not even the most well-known in New Brunswick. But the story of the Olins captures something essential about dynasties. Dynasties are rife with conflict, sibling against sibling, parent against child, all for the sake of money, control, or even just affection. So is the case of Richard and Dennis Olin the worst example of a dynasty gone wrong? Or is it something else entirely? Was the justice system so blinded by a familiar story that it almost sent an innocent man to prison? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. On Thursday, July the 7th, 2011, at approximately 8.54 a.m., Public Safety Communications Centre 
re received a request for service to attend 52 Canterbury Street, St. John City Center, the office of Richard Olin. It was later determined at the scene that Mr. Olin had expired. Preliminary results of the autopsy, coupled with the evidence at the scene, clearly indicate that Richard Olin was a victim of foul play, homicide. There is no evidence at this time to suggest that this was a robbery or a random act. Richard Olin's body had been found by his secretary, Maureen Anderson. Here's Greg Marquis again, and if you hear some meowing in the background, that's just Greg's cat, and to warn you, you will be hearing from that kitty quite a bit in this episode. The next morning, uh, his secretary, Maureen Anderson, went into the office, uh, saw a few little things amiss as she went in through the, uh, the doors, and when she got inside, she noticed uh, things were out of place, and as she looked over in the area where her boss had his desk, she saw a body on the floor. So she went down, she panicked, went down below, got help to the business down below. Just a warning, the next little bit gets pretty graphic. The scene of the crime was absolutely gruesome. Blood was everywhere. He was uh, face down on the floor with his legs under his desk, and he had massive trauma to the back of his head. There was a pool of blood around his head, and there was blood spatter in kind of a circle pattern uh, emanating out from the crime scene. What was clear from the beginning was that this wasn't some robbery. There were no signs of a break-in, meaning Richard probably let his killer into the office. And almost nothing was taken. The computers, Richard's Rolex, all of them were still in the room. The only thing missing was Richard's iPhone. Richard Olin's murder was immediately a sensation. Greg Marquis remembers exactly where he was when he heard the news. I was in the public library that afternoon, and someone said, "Did you know one of the librarians, did you hear what happened, and mentioned the name. And I certainly knew the name, but I had never met Mr. Olin. And it was a bit of a shock because, again, there had been a number of murders you know, in, in St. John in, in the years and months prior to this and after this, but uh, this was not a typical case you know, with a wealthy person um, being murdered in his office. The Olins are one of the most well-known families in New Brunswick. The Irvings are huge in their influence. The McCains also are fairly, and, and beyond New Brunswick as well, for, with the McCains and the Irvings. But the Olins are, are, are sort of, I would say, almost like a second-tier dynasty, uh, something like the Ganongs. And uh, they, they certainly have been around for a while. They're, they're quieter, sort of low-profile. They valued their privacy, and they were just not, they just haven't been as high-profile as, say, the Irvings or the McCains. And it's kind of ironic, given all the publicity that then was visited upon the family after the murder of Richard. And I should make an important distinction just at the top. There's actually two branches of the Olin family, distantly related, both of them in the Maritimes and both of them involved in brewing. There's the Nova Scotia Olins, who owned the Olin Brewery in Halifax. They sold their company to InBev in the 1970s, and they brew beers like Alexander Keith's, Oland, and Schooner. But that's not who we're talking about here. The New Brunswick Olins are best known for Moosehead Brewery, which is the largest independent brewery in Canada. So who exactly is this family? The Olin dynasty begins the same year that Canada was born, 1867. As the company is always telling us, it's six generations in the brewing business. That year, Susanna Oland opened a brewery in Nova Scotia. 
She ran the business and was the chief brewer, but her husband's name was on the paperwork. Susanna uh, Oland and her uh, husband, who came in from England, John, in 1867 to Dartmouth, and they started a brewery uh, at Turtle Cove in Dartmouth, and eventually they moved across the Halifax Harbor to uh, set up shop in Halifax. The brewery was a success. After Susanna Olin died, she passed the business on to her sons, a tradition that would continue for the next century. In 1917, the brewing business hit a bit of a speed bump. The Halifax Explosion. Oh my God, look at that. People, get out of here, it's going to blow up. Not only was the brewery destroyed, but one of the Oland sons was killed. So the third generation of the family took over a brewery in St. John after the Halifax explosion. The interesting thing about when uh, they took over the brewery in New Brunswick and for the first 10 years, and when they bought the James Reddy Brewery in the west side, Prohibition was still underway. So you think about that, you're investing in a brewery during Prohibition. And so they made low-alcohol beer, soft drinks and things like that. When Prohibition was lifted, Moosehead was the only game in town. If you're going to sell beer in New Brunswick, it was advantageous to make it in New Brunswick, and they had the only two breweries. Moosehead continued to do well, and by the 1980s, it was the largest Canadian-owned brewery in the country. Here's a commercial from that time. Did you know that 94% of the beer brewed in this country comes from two breweries? Some choice, huh? Moosehead isn't brewed by the big two. It's brewed by the oldest independent brewery in Canada, still owned and operated by the original family since 1867. Richard Oland had been a vice president at Moosehead. But in the 1980s, his father was deciding who would run the company when he died. Richard had two other siblings, his brother Derek and his sister Jane. Derek had spent some time in charge of things in Nova Scotia, and at one point he moved back. The father had to decide which son is going to run things to be the CEO, so to speak. According to many of the stories, Derek at one point had threatened to, or was planning to move to Australia, I believe, or New Zealand. And that seemed to have forced the father's hand, and he made Derek, the eldest son, the head guy. Richard then sort of departed in a huff. Richard was forced out of the business. But he's never really gone because I think Phil helped set him up with a trucking company that became one of the bigger trucking companies in the region. And one of the main clients for that trucking company was Moosehead. Right. Plus, he still has some shares in Moosehead as well. So he's not involved in the running of Moosehead after the parting of the ways, which was supposed to be acrimonious, but he's certainly benefiting from the Moosehead connection and the family. Richard Oland was well-respected in the St. John community. He was the chair of the 1985 Canada Summer Games, widely hailed as a success. He was involved with business development groups in the local Catholic diocese. He was chair of the board of the New Brunswick Museum. He was given an honorary doctorate by the University of New Brunswick and was awarded an Order of Canada. So when Richard Oland was found dead that July morning in 2011, it was a shock to the New Brunswick establishment. His funeral was a meeting of the New Brunswick elite. The premier was there, as were numerous cabinet ministers, MLAs, and the lieutenant governor. So were members of New Brunswick's other famous dynasties, the Irvings and the McCains. But also present were the cops, taking photos of everyone and tracking who was there, just as they would for the funeral of a mafia don. At the funeral, a journalist took a photo that would become infamous. It was Dennis Oland walking with his wife, Lisa. Lisa's in tears. 
But Dennis, Dennis is smiling. Richard and Dennis were very different people. Richard was a hard-nosed businessman who people have described as cold and brash. The image of Richard being sort of controlling, hot-tempered, unpredictable, that type of thing, a bit of a bully, you know, doing his own thing and not really caring what people thought. A very uh, active man, uh, skiing, ocean racing, and uh, he would go on trips. He was a bit of a thrill seeker. Dennis, meanwhile, appears to have been more subdued, a family man. He seemed to be uh, a dad, you know, who was a divorced dad with three kids he, he, who he spent a lot of time with. He had, uh, I think he had the kids in alternate weeks, and he was living in Rosse and doing things at the Yacht Club and going on family trips. He seemed to be close to his mother. The two did have one shared interest, one that's very on the nose for an episode of Dynasties. Both Dennis and Richard loved genealogy. In fact, that's what Dennis says he was doing at his dad's office that day. He had done some genealogical research about the Olin family that he thought his dad would find interesting. Here's Dennis again during his interrogation. You know, for me, uh, I guess the, the time that I've seen him is, you know, when we've been doing this family history stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why I was over there yesterday. Yeah. And we both have this, I got it from him, but I mean, we both have this real enjoyment and doing genealogy stuff. Before meeting up with his father on the day that he was killed, Dennis appears to have had a pretty normal day. The day of his father's death, Dennis spent pretty well the whole day in his office in Brunswick Tower, which is just a block or so away from his dad's office. Dennis told the police that he drove over to visit his father a little after 5 p.m. Security footage shows him circling the block three times before he parked. But he didn't see his dad that time. He claimed he parked in one spot, he went into the building, he got to the top of the stairs, and then he realized he had forgotten some documents back in his office. He walked back down, got in his car, and maybe set out to get them, and then he realized, well, I can't get into the building because my swipe card will not work at my own building after 5 o'clock or something like that. I went to go back to my office, but I don't have the key, mm-hmm. and it was too late to go back in, so obviously okay. it was after uh-huh. 5. Right. Because everything gets shut down. At your office? Yeah. At five, yeah. yeah, they leave. Uh, they, I don't know what time they lock the elevator, but you need one of those. Uh, Same thing you guys have around here, yeah. those little pass card things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went back and uh, just said, oh, well, I have enough information. I have what he wanted. And uh, went in. Uh, Maureen was there. She was obviously you know, getting ready to leave. Mm-hmm. Dennis says he talked with his dad about genealogy for 40 minutes and then left. Dennis says that after that, he went to a wharf near his home to see if his children were there. Then he went home, out to a pharmacy and a grocery store, and finally called it a night. On the way home, I stopped at the Renforth Wharf to see if my kids were there, because they do kayaking there, Mm -hmm. and they swim after, Mm -hmm. but they weren't there. So uh, I went home, and uh, Lisa was sick, Mm -hmm. (laughs) still is, so we went to the drugstore. And we went to Cochran's, which is a little sort of grocery store market yes. thing, and got some samosas and bananas and a few other things and went home and had dinner. Security camera footage and eyewitnesses corroborated his account. But what Dennis didn't tell the cops during the interrogation was that he'd gone back to his father's office for a third time before he went to the wharf. He drove back, briefly drove the wrong way down a one-way street, and parked. 
and then he went back up to his father's office, staying only for a few minutes. He later claimed it was to pick up a book that he had left. According to the Crown, that was, you know, he, he had finally got up the courage to go back and, and have it out with his father one last time. So why did the cops think that Dennis Oland would want to kill his father? Well, according to some, Dick Oland was a dick. For one, he had been having a long-standing affair with a local woman, even though both of them were married. Going back over the last few years, uh, was there anything in, in your mind that would stick out as being un, unusual or different? Did your father ever bring anything up uh, while talking uh, that concerned you, maybe? or He personally, no. I mean, there there is... Um... I'm sure you've heard this already from the others. I mean, there is this family concern that he's he's had an affair, mm-hmm. was having an affair, or or what have you. I feel guilty right now of not sort of saying anything to my mother or about it, but I just didn't know if it was true or not. The affair appeared to be a bit of an open secret and was causing tension in the family. When asked who he thought could have been involved in the killing, Dennis points to his father's mistress. The only person that comes to mind is this supposed girlfriend because she really seems to be a whack job. Mm-hmm. Like, they call her the dragon lady. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's this hostile, uh, somebody who you think could be that fatal attraction type person. Yes. Um, but that's just... I don't know the woman, so that's just me saying stuff that I hear. But then there was the question of money. According to prosecutors, Dennis Olin had long been living beyond his means, and his father had loaned him hundreds of thousands of dollars so that Dennis could keep his home after he got divorced. I mean, look, the biggest thing my father did for me, and, and it was a surprise, a very pleasant surprise, when I I went through a divorce uh, two or three or four years ago now, maybe four years ago. And it was a very bitter experience. Yes. And an experience where I was very likely going to lose my home. Mm-hmm. And this is a home that, it's an old family home. It was owned right. by my grandparents, been in the family for, for 70 years. Very important. And there's a farm behind it. And, and he stepped up and said, look, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he basically bankrolled my whole divorce case, Mm -hmm. which ended up being $85,000. It was a very lengthy divorce. Yes. And then, because I had to to basically give half of my assets to my Mm ex-wife, he bankrolled that as well so that I could keep my house. Right. So, basically, I have a mortgage with him. Mm -hmm. Dennis was paying his father $1,600 a month for the loan, and it later emerged that he had bounced his last payment before his father's death. So in other words, if Richard Olin died, Dennis wouldn't have to pay back the nearly half million dollars he owed his father. The money was central to what police and prosecutors would present as the motive for the crime. The motive was a combination of his uh, stress over his financial situation. It wasn't as simple as, uh, hey, if I kill my father, I don't have to pay him back the half a million dollars he's advanced me. It was more like the stress. Dennis was living beyond his means, as, as he freely admitted, so he just had that cash flow problem. So stress about his financial situation combined with resentment over the mistress and, I guess, the disrespect that meant towards his mother and the victim's wife 
and also may, uh, maybe a lifelong you know, set of antagonisms of sort of the father and son dynamics. When the cops began to turn the screws on Dennis during the interrogation, they focused on how severe Richard had been with his family. Did you just go there and get into an argument with him about money? Because you know what? Everything you've told me, Dennis, is about money. And if I grew up in your circumstances with money all around you, at this stage of my life, I would expect to be sharing in some of that, not battling with that son of a bitch every single day and having him control every aspect of my life because he wouldn't give up any of his goddamn money. You didn't plan this, Dennis. He brought this on, pushed you, pushed you, pushed you, squeezed you, rubbed your face in the fact that he controls it all, disrespected you, disrespected your mother. Yeah, I've got this one, this little sweetie, and I'm taking her away. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Where's my 1600 bucks, Dennis? You owe me 1600 bucks because I bailed you out. After they told Dennis he was a suspect, the police got nothing more out of him. But they kept trying to push his buttons. The next little bit is both weird and kind of mean. So where do you go from here, Dennis? Where do you go from here? Is there a plan for that? Is there a plan for it? Besides, wasn't me, didn't do it, can't prove a thing. Pop culture. Bart Simpson. Wasn't me, didn't do it, can't prove a thing. Well, let me show you this video here, Mr. Simpson. Ah, wasn't me. You called him the dirty pig. And I think that was a pretty accurate term. Because if everybody else knew in your family, and they did, and the sad thing is, <laughs> you guys thought you were hiding it from your mom, you didn't hide it from her. She knew. Dirty family secret that everybody tried to keep. The old man's got a bucket full of Viagra. The dirty family secret, and everybody tried to keep it from everybody else. Even though the police were convinced Dennis Oland had killed his father, it would be a long, long time before they made an arrest. Immediately after Richard Olin's murder, it seemed like everyone in St. John had an opinion about what had happened. The rumor mill was crazy. I mean, I think within the first week, I mean, there are all sorts of crazy rumors. Two of the crazy ones I heard was that it was a Russian or Ukrainian hitman. And not only did they do it because there was some sort of business deal at one sour or something involving the victim, but, you know, we saw them get on the jet at the St. John airport the next day. So this is coffee shop talk. The other really strange one that I heard is that Dennis Olin was threatening to throw himself off the St. John Harbor Bridge a few days after the murder. None of that was true, but the rumors kept proliferating. Police searched Dennis Olin's home a week after the murder, which only caused more speculation. Here's CBC reporter Bobby Jean McKinnon at the scene. I'm standing here on Gondola Point Road in Rossay, where St. John police are executing a search warrant. They've been here since the noon hour. Sergeant Glenn Hayward won't tell us who lives here, but neighbors say it's the home of Dennis Oland, the son of prominent businessman Richard Oland, who was found dead in his St. John office last Thursday. The police were tight-lipped about what they knew. But over the next many months, CBC News and Brunswick News sued to get the warrants and information about the case slowly began to drip out. Tidbits were coming out, like the, you know, the suspect owes the, this is the way it was phrased, the suspect owed the victim half a million dollars. The victim had a mistress, things like that. 
And then I think at one point towards the very end, it was the, the suspect was the last known person to see the victim alive. And then finally the victim's son, well, there's only one son. By the time Dennis was arrested, people knew that he was the prime suspect. Even though it was the biggest story in town, some people weren't so keen to talk about it. People from the wealthy St. John's suburb of Rothsay, where the Olins lived, seemed to clam up. I live in Quispamsis, which is just beside Rothsay. People in Rossi were not always forthcoming. They didn't want to talk about the case for whatever reasons. Often they wouldn't give you the reason. Maybe they just didn't want to draw attention to it, or they're embarrassed, or they're afraid they'd say something, or whatever it was. But I found there was a little bit of a, almost like a cone of silence, you know, in, in, in many areas of Rossi. I do think that family of this nature living in a community like Rossi does probably get a little bit of cover. I'm not sure that's the right word, but uh, maybe protection, I'm not sure. In November of 2013, more than two years after Richard Oland had been killed, his son Dennis was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. Because of all of the publicity, the Crown sent out 5,000 summons to potential jurors. The jury selection had to take place in a St. John hockey arena. Dennis Oland hired top-flight lawyers, and despite the fact that he was accused of killing his father, his entire family stuck behind him. They had the resources and education and connections to do things like issue press releases and things like that. So I, I think there was a bit of uh, image management here. I mean, even during the last trial, they, they, there seemed to be press conferences almost every week, right? Uh, and uh, which had no, which you know, it wouldn't have any impact on the legal case. So why are they doing it, right? It's because of public image and, and, and things like that. The trial lasted 65 days and was a public spectacle. Most people in the public would never have met Dennis Olin, uh, formed very strong opinions, uh, many of them pro and con, right, in terms of his guilt and, and that type of thing. So it kind of became a larger social phenomenon. And depending on who you believe, the evidence was either extremely compelling or exceedingly thin. First, there's the jacket. During his interrogation, Dennis Olin told the cops that he had been wearing a blue blazer the day his father was killed. What were you wearing? These pants, the shoes, a dress shirt, and a navy blazer. You were wearing every, those, those pants, those shoes? Those shoes, a dress shirt, not this, a you know, collar dress shirt, yeah. and a navy blazer. And a navy blazer, yeah. But surveillance footage clearly showed that Dennis had been wearing a brown blazer that day. And even though he was being tailed by police, that blazer was somehow sent to the dry cleaners the day after the interrogation. When police finally seized the blazer during their search of Dennis's house, they found something on it. And they tested it in a couple of labs, and they found there were three or four uh, small specks of biological material on Dennis's jacket, the one he had dry cleaned the day after his police interview, which was also suspicious to the police. That biological material belonged to the victim. Then there's the missing phone. Remember, Richard Olin's iPhone was the only thing that had been taken from the crime scene that day. The phone had been backed up earlier in the day, so it was likely in the office when Richard was killed. But by 6.45 that evening, just minutes after Dennis had left his dad's office for the last time, there was no more activity on that phone. But Richard's mistress had been trying to get in touch with him. And according to the Crown's experts, at around 6.45 p.m., the phone pinged a cell tower, 
not in St. John, but in Rothsay, close to where Dennis Olin had gone to right after. So circumstantially, they were suggesting then that Dennis had the cell phone. But the cell phone was never actually found. And then there's the way in which Richard Oland was killed. He was bludgeoned. It was incredibly violent and had the feel of something very personal. There's overkill involved, sometimes in terms of a stabbing or a, a bludgeoning to death or something like that. It's often connected to, uh, you know, uh, intimate partner violence or some sort of personal connection. The defense, however, argued that the Crown just didn't have a case. First off, despite numerous searches, the cops were never able to find the murder weapon. And let's go back to that blazer with Richard Oland's blood on it. The defense presented evidence that Dick Oland had a condition that made his scalp bleed, and that he was frankly a pretty touchy guy. And more importantly, why was there only a small amount of blood on it? Where's the blood, right? Blood spatter if you're hitting someone with a, a hatchet or a hammer or whatever it was. The Crown had its own blood expert who said, well, it doesn't always work that way, but the defense expert said, if, you know, when someone's hit, the blood tends to spatter back onto the attacker. And there's no way, you know, you could escape being having significant amount of blood on your person, on your clothes, and your, your footwear. And Dennis Oland was seen on surveillance video only a few hours later walking into a pharmacy. And he certainly didn't appear to be covered in blood. So according to the Crown, when he's appearing in the uh, video at the food store, that's only about an hour after he's murdered his father. And the defense would show that video and say, you know, does this look like a guy? He's wearing his golf shirt. He's, in his, he's with his wife. He's wearing his shorts. He's wearing his dockers, you know. Does this look like a guy who's just murdered someone? As for the phone, again, it was never found, and the Crown didn't really have a theory as to why it had been taken. The defense also presented numerous instances of what appeared to be the St. John police bungling the investigation. Officers not wearing gloves in the crime scene. Cops using the bathroom in Olin's office for two days before they tested it for evidence. And then there's the brown blazer that had little bits of Richard's blood on it, the key piece of evidence in the Crown's case. When the jacket was seized at Dennis's home, it was touched by a cop with his bare hands. It was then left in a bag for four months before it was tested for evidence. And the woman who worked at the dry cleaners said she didn't notice any blood on the jacket prior to cleaning it. In the end, the jury deliberated for 30 hours. And on the day the verdict came down, Greg Marquis says he could feel the tension in the room. Before the judge came in and before the jury came in, there was almost like a, a very serious, gloomy atmosphere in, you know, in, in the room. The jury found Dennis Oland guilty of second-degree murder. Here's a CTV report on the verdict. The jury foreman was asked why the court clerk had they reached a verdict. He replied, yes. And he replied in a strong voice, guilty. At that point, Dennis Olin collapsed into his chair, sobbing uncontrollably. He put his face into his hands, sobbing, saying, my children, my children, and my God, my God. And at the same time, his family was sobbing in the front row of the courtroom. They were trying to comfort each other. Dennis Oland was sentenced to life in prison. that wasn't the end of the story for Dennis. His family still had immense resources to fight the case. 
They appealed the decision and they won. The New Brunswick Court of Appeal ruled that the trial judge had given the jury incorrect instructions when it came to that brown blazer. A new trial date was set, a new jury pool was convened, and thousands of potential jurors once again gathered in the St. John Hockey Arena. But not too long after a jury was put together, the justice declared a mistrial because of, quote, improprieties. Instead, the justice decided he'd hear the case alone. So there's another lengthy trial, another set of arguments. The New Brunswick public is once again captivated by the story. And earlier this year, eight years after the killing of Richard Oland, there's another verdict. And this time, the outcome is different. This time, the justice finds Dennis Oland not guilty. Dennis Olin was greeted with applause when he left the courtroom a free man. He declined to speak, but his lawyer had plenty to say. And I hope that everybody in St. John now understands and appreciates that Dennis Olin did not kill his father and understands the misery that he and his family and his friends and supporters have gone through through the last eight years. Even though the justice found Dennis Olin not guilty, he doesn't let him off in his judgment. If you read the judge's uh, decision in the second case, he has some critical things to say about Dennis Olin's testimony. He doesn't totally believe him as a witness. He says there are things that indicate that Dennis Olin is involved in this case, etc., etc. On the other hand, there's not quite enough there, right? The murder of Richard Oland and the trials of his son that followed captivated New Brunswickers partially because of the stark class divide in the province. It's the poorest province in Canada, but it's home to so many dynasties. And if you've listened to our episode on the Irvings, you already know that the New Brunswick elite is intensely private and immensely powerful. It was a, a rare look into the personal life and even the personal finances of the accused in terms of a member of one of New Brunswick's elite families. For Greg Marquis, the most important thing to understand about the case is how close Dennis Oland was to going to prison for life. Despite what a judge eventually deemed to be pretty flimsy evidence. If the New Brunswick Court of Appeal had not found that point on the trial judge's instructions to the jury in the first trial, Dennis Oland would still be in federal penitentiary now. And according to the second trial, he's not legally guilty. Your mind turns, how often does this happen with other offenders who don't have that kind of legal defense? It's not always the case that having lots of lawyers in deep pockets are going to keep you out of jail because we can think of all sorts of examples where people are convicted despite having, you know, the top lawyers in deep pockets. But certainly it can make a difference. It's too early to tell whether the Olin family will be able to move past this trial or if it will forever tar their reputation. But what's almost certain is that we'll never know for sure what happened to Richard Olin that July day in 2011. That's your episode of Commons for the week. 
This episode relied on reporting done by Greg Marquis, Bobby Jean McKinnon and the team at CBC New Brunswick, Nicholas Kohler and Tamsin McMahon at McLean's and CTV News. If you found this episode interesting, I urge you to check out the two excellent books written about Dick and Dennis Oland. There's Truth and Honor by Greg Marquis and Shadow of Doubt by Bobby Jean McKinnon. Both are excellent. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet at us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Archie, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.